There is a truth at the center of our gospel which offends the judicial sensibility of perceptive people. The Old Testament wise man in Proverbs chapter 17 verse 15 expressed that judicial sense like this. He said, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. We unseat judges with indignation who acquit the guilty. We are outraged when wrong and guilt are given legal sanction in the courts. And yet, at the center of our gospel stands the sentence, God justifies the ungodly. God acquits the guilty who have faith in Jesus. That is the gospel. But how in the world can it be right when we don't allow it? in our own courts. Someone might say, well, don't concern yourself with the whys and wherefores and the hows of God's activity. Trust God. If God says he does a thing and God is righteous, then trust him that it's righteous for him to do that thing. Don't doubt your maker. Well, now, I admire very much that kind of confidence in the righteousness of God. Indeed, God's mind is infinitely higher, deeper, broader, wiser than my little mind. And therefore, what looks wrong to me might not be wrong, given all that God knows and all that God is. But the desire to know how it is that God can be right by acquitting the guilty need not necessarily come from doubt that he is righteous. There are at least two other motivations that I can think of that prompt me, at least, to ask that question. One of those motivations is this. The hunger, which I think every one of us should have, to know and to worship God's wisdom just as deeply as we can, so that we can say with Paul, like he did at the end of Romans 11, Oh, the death! of the wisdom and the riches of God. How can we ever say that unless we probe as deeply as we can into those depths and those riches and find them indeed bottomless? When you are amazed at a physiologist's understanding of the mysteries of the human body and you say to him, but how can this be and, and how does this work? It's not because you doubt his wisdom. It's because you delight so much in seeing into the amazing intricacies of the human body, isn't it? We love to understand more about complex and wonderful things. And I consider it a chief mark of a lover of God that he or she wants to know more about the wisdom of God and the way God works and how it is that God does what he does. Then we can admire him worship Him, and enjoy Him ever more intensely. That's one reason. There's another motive for why we should inquire into how it is 
that God can be just and yet justify the ungodly. I think we ought to try to remove as many unnecessary stumbling blocks as possible from a reasonable approval of what God does. If people stumble over something about God because they fail to understand it and therefore they don't approve of what they see in Scripture, well, then we ought to help them get over those hindrances to a reasonable approval. Now, there would be some who would cry out, well, no, wait a minute, don't bring God down to our level and make him palatable to the human mind. And I want to agree with that in one sense. It would be wrong to try to exonerate the ways of God if to do that we twisted his revelation to make it palatable to worldly minds. That's not what I want. What I want is all unnecessary stumbling blocks to be removed. That surely is not wrong. If God has revealed the whys and the wherefores of his action in the scriptures, then it's incumbent upon us to inquire into those whys and wherefores and hows so that we can reasonably approve of what he is doing in the world. Well, now, I think in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to chapter 4, verse 5, God has given some of those whys and wherefores. He has revealed an answer to our question, how can he be righteous and yet do what we allow no judges to do, namely acquit the guilty? Let's follow his thinking starting at verse 21. Up until verse 21 here in chapter 3, Paul has had it upon his heart to prove that all men are under sin and therefore accountable before God, which has been the point of my last two Sunday messages, which have brought us now to the point of verses 21 following, where Paul undertakes to deal with a remedy for this universal disease of sin and its consequent judgment. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That is the best news in all the world for people like me who know who are intensely aware of their own guilt before God and know that no matter how much righteousness we try to amass on our own, it will not earn the favor of God. This is good news, and the good news is that God has made available for people who trust Jesus a righteousness that does stand up in the court of God. We cannot work for this gift in such a way as to earn it or merit it, or deserve it, as we saw last week. But it is there for everyone who has faith in Christ, who hopes in Jesus. This is confirmed over in the next chapter, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 4. Two tremendously important verses for understanding how we come to enjoy the benefits of Christ. To the one who works, his wages are not reckoned as a gift but as his due. So if you want to work for God, go ahead. But all you're going to get is due, not gift. I hope you don't do that. To the one who does not work, 
That is, does not try to earn or merit or deserve God's gift, but instead trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned for righteousness. The good news is that there is free acquittal for all our sins if we would just stop trying to impress God and impress each other and rest in the work of Jesus. There is no drug and no salve for the human conscience that works and frees and gives peace like this truth. And oh, how I hope everybody in this room takes it away with them today. Goes away clean with Christ instead of unclean with our own works. But now, that's the good news. The good news is simple. I struggled with whether I should say this or not, but I feel like I've got to tuck it in. I remember teaching a class over in Germany, and afterwards a couple came up to me and they said, oh, that was so complex. Isn't, isn't the gospel simple? Isn't it easy enough for a child to understand? And I said, I don't remember what I said, but here's what I would say today. The gospel is simple. Easy enough for a six-year-old to understand. I was saved when I was six. The foundation of the gospel is not simple. It is hard to understand. It is complex. And Peter said so. Paul says some of the things Paul wrote, Peter said some of the things Paul wrote are hard to understand. And the unstable and the wicked twist them to their own destruction. And I have some hard things to say for the next... Ten minutes or so. And I want you to put on your thinking caps because Romans 3 verses 22 to 26 are hard to understand. But I'm going to try to help. So please follow me. There is a problem that the gospel creates for the Apostle Paul. The problem is given for us as we look through verses 24 and 26. Verse 24 says... They are justified by His grace as a gift. But now it doesn't stop there. He goes deeper and He gives the basis or the foundation of that justification. The acquittal of the guilty takes place upon a basis of a divine transaction that happens in the experience of Jesus. And it's called redemption here in verse 24. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Or in other words, a purchase or a ransom. Something happened in the death of Jesus that is so stupendous that millions and millions of sinners are now being acquitted of all their guilt on the basis of what that was. What is it that happened in verses 24 following? He gives us the answer in 25 and 26. God put Christ forward as an expiation or propitiation by his blood, that is, by his death, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Now, here we get a glimpse into what the problem was that Paul had with justification by faith. God's righteousness is called into question by the passing over of former sins. That's why he has to demonstrate 
his righteousness because he has passed over former sins. What that means, I think, is this. In the present time, he is justifying ungodly people, acquitting the guilty, passing over their sin, not counting it against them. He did the same thing in the past. All we do is go over here to chapter 4, verse 6, and read, So also David, thousand years earlier, pronounces a blessing on the man whom God reckons righteous apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not reckon his sin. God did not reckon to David the sin of adultery or the sin of murder. He justified him by faith. He passed over his sins. Now, that creates a problem. Because he says there in verse 25, because he did this, God has now had to demonstrate his righteousness by putting Christ forward as an expiation. But I want to ask why. Why is it that passing over sins calls God's righteousness into question? There are some who understand the righteousness of God in such a way that that's an expression of it, not a problem. The reason, I think, is not this. Some might say, in our court system... You pass over and acquit the guilty, you turn rapists back onto the street. I don't think that's the reason that God's righteousness is called into question. Because from last Sunday's message, we should know that saving faith always transforms the life. Nobody gets justified and goes out and is the same person all over again. So that argument that it would be unrighteous of God to acquit the guilty because the guilty then go right back into their sin isn't true. Whom God justifies, he sanctifies. That's true. Well, what is then the reason? I think it's basically this. Now, here's where it gets a little bit tough. See if you can follow. The real reason why the righteousness of God is called into question when he passes over the sin of Abraham, the sin of David, the sin of Elijah, and all the saints of the Old Testament. And why? And when he passes over our sins. The reason that makes God appear unrighteous is that it looks as if God is agreeing that his glory, which sin rubs in the dirt, is in fact not valuable. I'll try to say it another way. It makes God look as if he's not being true to himself, as if he's not upholding the value of his own honor and glory. It makes God look as if he's given up on his righteous purpose to display his glory in the world and preserve his honor. But if God denies his own infinite value, he not only denies himself, he also diminishes the value of the glory in which we have hoped and therefore is very unloving towards us. If you're a martyr and you give your life in hope of the glory of God and God turns around and acts in a way as if that glory were of no value at all, you feel like you've given your life in vain and you would have given it in vain. Therefore, God's righteousness and His love stand and fall together. The reason that I think it's this horrible prospect 
that calls God's righteousness into question comes from verses 23 of chapter 3 and verse 21 of chapter 1. The essence of sin seems to be, in these two verses, that men fall short of God's glory or exchange God's glory for a lesser glory. We know verse 23 very well. All have sinned and fall short of or lack the glory of God. There is some very close connection between the meaning of sin and the belittling of God's glory. Then look at Romans 1, verses 21 to 23. And I think here we get an explanation of that correlation between sin and the diminishing of God's glory. Verse 21 says, Although men knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or thank Him. And drop down a little bit in verse 22. Claiming to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, or reptiles. Natural man, man apart from the sanctifying influences of the Holy Spirit, always delights more in the glory of created things than he does in the glory of God. That is, he exchanges the glory of God. He makes a trade. I'll give up the glory of God if I can just have a frog, a totem pole, a car, a motorcycle, an education, a wife, etc., etc. And thereby, he exchanges the glory of God and falls short of it or lacks it. And that's what all sin is. And now it should become clearer that when God passes over such sin that is simply a dragging in the dirt of God's glory, what does it look like? It looks like he doesn't care anymore for his glory, as if it has no value to him. But that would be wrong. It is valuable. It's infinitely valuable. And it would be infinitely wrong for God to act as if his glory were of no value at all. He would be unrighteous to act this way, and that's the heart of Paul's problem with justification by faith. It makes God look as if he no longer values his glory because he's going about acquitting people whose sins have drug it in the dirt. Now, his solution to this problem, in one word or in a phrase, is the death of Christ. Verse 25, God put Christ forward as an expiation by his blood, that is, by his death. How could God maintain the value of his glory and thus be righteous and yet justify ungodly people who have belittled and depreciated that glory? The answer he gives in verses 25 and 26 is by sending Christ to die and thus demonstrate God's righteousness. But how? How is it that the dying of the Son of God demonstrates and upholds the righteousness of God when he is acquitting ungodly people. Now, Paul doesn't spell this out in great detail. But he gives us enough, and we have enough from other scriptures that we can piece it together. And here's the way I think it works. We know from other scriptures that everything Jesus did in living and in dying, 
he did for the glory of his Father. For example, in John 12, Jesus says as he approaches the hour of his death, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, for this I have come to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. That's why he went through with the cross. Or, after Judas had walked out on the Last Supper, Jesus' death was imminent and he said, Now, in the most bleak hour, now is the Son of Man glorified and in him God is glorified. And then finally, in that great prayer in John 17, Jesus prays like this when his death is virtually complete as far as he's concerned. Father, I have glorified you upon the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, what we see from these texts in the Gospel of John is that everything Jesus suffered, he suffered for the glory of the Father, right? Therefore, all the pain and all the shame and all the humiliation and all the dishonor served to magnify the glory of God because it showed what a tremendous loss Jesus was willing to undergo in order to restore that glory. And therefore, we can see that in the dying of Jesus, God had not given up on the preserving and the display of his own glory because the death of Jesus upholds it and demonstrates it above all things. Therefore, God has not denied the value of his own glory. He has not been untrue to himself. He has not ceased to uphold the value of his glory and the display of his honor. Therefore, he is righteous. The awful death of the Son of God is the means whereby God can be both just in himself and justifier of the ungodly. That is a glorious thought. The foundation of our justification is not a flimsy sentimentality. It is the rock of the unassailable righteousness of God, demonstrated in the death of Jesus and certified to us in the resurrection of our Lord. And I pray that this word might deepen the roots of your faith, so that you can live in faith more consistently for our Lord Jesus. May God go with us all and grant us to be conscious of the great love that he has for us and the freedom we have through justification on the basis of the death of Christ. Amen.